This is episode 16 with psychiatrist and legend, Dr. John Lane. G'day everyone and welcome to The Blokecast. I am your host, Brendan Hardman, and each week we bring you an inspirational guest or message to help you blokes out there live a holistically healthy lifestyle. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are around the world and let's get stuck in. Everyone knows that I love a good Dwayne Johnson quote. So today's quote comes from The Rock and it is, all successes begin with self-discipline. It starts with you. And it relates so well to this episode because this episode is all about you. It's all about how you can understand that everything you do in life, no matter what it is, your journey starts with you. We have an incredible guest today, and that is Dr. John Lane, who is a psychiatrist who I've known for a number of years now and has become quite close to me, and we've become great mates over that time. And really in that time, I've kind of discovered that John just has an incredible story. And I'm so excited to be able to share that with you today. His background and his journey is completely different to any other psychiatrist that I've ever heard of. He is an experienced man. He is a man of wisdom, and he's got so many points that we can touch on today. We're going to talk about everything from you know, his background to medication to purpose in life to the STAIR program, which we'll get stuck into, which he runs. It is such an awesome episode, and I absolutely can't wait to bring it to you. But before we get started, as always... We're going to do Legend of the Week. Now, if you want to be a Legend of the Week, then all you need to do is jump onto iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review. The keyword here, review. And then you can be featured on our next episode or an upcoming episode of the Blogcast. Quite simple, really. Yet, it helps the podcast so much. And today's Legend of the Week is... Ooh... It's a tough one, actually. Borgouts, maybe? So it's B-O-R-G-H-O-U-T-S. I'm going to say Borgouts. So Borgouts, thank you so much. They have given us a five-star review. And it states, open, honest, genuine, relatable, inspirational. Brendan's story is remarkable and his commitment to help others is unquestionable. Easy to listen to, enjoyable, and a truly valuable podcast. Well, Borgouts, thank you so, so much for this. Actually, now that I'm actually reading that, I think I actually know who this is. That's cool. I know I can I can send her a message because there's another another chick actually. So yeah, this is great. So I'll I'll send her a message and say thank you. We're rolling with the punches here, and uh, and yes, thank you so much for that uh, for that comment there. And uh, yes, it is great that this podcast is helping so many people. It is great that I'm getting the feedback that I'm getting, and I'm just enjoying it so much. I'm enjoying doing things. I'm enjoying. I I feel like I've got. A true sense of purpose, a true sense of purpose in what I'm doing, and I'm I'm actually really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying bringing you guys some awesome content. So if you want to help us grow, then please share this with your friends. Share this with people who you think may need it. Share the podcast around, and uh, and let's get it spread further. Let's get that reach going further. All right, a couple of other awesome announcements. We've got some new kit coming in soon, so I'm pretty excited. We're actually going to have the ability to be able to do one-on-one interviews, like in person, 
so that kit should hopefully arrive this week. And so we've got already a couple of interviews for in-person interviews locked away in the coming weeks. And, uh, and then we can still obviously do our online interviews like we do at the moment for anyone that doesn't live in the same state as me. But super excited to get that kit in. Super excited to get some more, I guess, better sound and better quality uh, audio out to you guys. And I just can't wait. All right. I want you guys to all sit back. I want you to relax, chill out, grab a beer, whatever it is you're doing. If you're driving, don't grab a beer. Probably grab a Coke or a water or something on those lines. And let's get stuck in. All right, everyone, welcome to this week's episode of The Blowcast, and I'm so incredibly humbled and so incredibly excited to have a good friend of mine, John Lane on, and uh, or Dr. John Lane, should I say. He's a psychiatrist who has one of the most interesting stories uh, that I've ever heard from someone in terms of their background, and I can't wait to get stuck into that. So thanks, John, for taking the time tonight to come on, and I really, really appreciate you, mate. Well, Brendan, mate, thank you very much for having me on, because I love your podcast, and thanks, mate. You know, there's not enough out there on blokes being blokes and what it actually means to be a bloke and positive masculinity, you know, which which you talk about on your show, warts and all, is bloody awesome. So thank you for having me on because um, I think I'm in very, very good company. Yes, yeah. Yeah, well, actually, that's that's a good like, little segue. We can just start off with a segue. What do you actually define as positive masculinity? Because I'd be really keen to kind of... Um, to hear this and see if it's kind of what, what I kind of reflects to me as well. Well, <laughs> I mean, this is probably not real popular, but I think blokes have to be in touch with their emotional side and not in a feminine sense, like not as a chick, <laughs> but in a masculine sense in terms of being ourselves. And, you know, I think that comes down to our sense of values, like who we are as people and how we see ourselves. And, you know, blokes typically tend to shy away from showing their emotions, but we've got a lot of positive emotions and, you know, love is a big part of this, like yes. love for our family, yes. because a big part of that is protection. And then part of that comes from providing, you know, supporting, um, and then being strong as a person as well too. And, you know, on the flip side, you could say a lot of blokes will shy away from, um, coming across as weak in any way, but, you know, <laughs> life can be shit and life can do you a shit sandwich. And say, so, you know, having your vulnerabilities and admitting to them and then working on them is actually a strength because it comes back to your core sort of sense of self and then your purpose. Because, you know, being able to admit to vulnerabilities and then being able to work on them means that they don't stay vulnerabilities, do they? And yeah. that's how we improve as people all the time. And you know, you have to have emotions. We're not robots. <laughs> and, you know, our, our soul emotions don't just consist of anger and you know, whatever else. And so being able to be honest with yourself is about sort of being emotional to me. And so I think that's actually really important. I think the other thing that comes across is actually being proud of being blokes without being, um, uh, you know, blokey bloke or whatever else. And yep. Because we're different to women, full stop, end of story. And yep. 
awesome, good, celebrate it, <laughs> you know, yeah. because thank God women are different to me because otherwise I wouldn't have the partner, you know, I've got right now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, you know, as probably as polarizing as it is these days, you know, it, it's hard to look in the media these days and find a positive story about men. Like you don't, yeah. you, don't you just don't see it. You know? No, look, you don't see it anywhere near enough. And no. to me, that's a crying shame because yeah. like boys need role models and you know steve bidoff is probably one of my favorite authors in terms of parenting and those sorts of things and he's got so much to say about positive role models as fathers and so that really is is the key question there because you know as a father you have to be a man <laughs> you know yeah. that's that's the biology of it yeah but that's the sorts of things that we need to show our kids you know our girls and our boys and that sort of stuff too the positive aspects of being a man and the strengths of being a man and how women complement us as people that's why yes. we're two different genders yes. and you know and i think yeah the safe space world wants to put us all in the, in the same box and that's just not how we work biologically or behaviorally so celebrate yep. the differences and keep on on actually going back to reality and going no we are different and let's celebrate that because that's why we work so well together yeah i think i guess one of the um, and this could be a bit loaded because I, I know, like, as full full disclosure to everyone, we're we're good mates, and yeah, you know, and I know that we have a lot of the same uh, the same uh, views on things, and the way we way we especially talk about mental health is is very similar. Yes, um, you, you're obviously having a more uh, more in depth and more medically <laughs> medically based background and medically based knowledge than me, but in terms of the the core skills, you know, we, we're actually quite aligned. So when I kind of asked yeah. that question. I kind of knew that I was going to get something that that resonated yeah. resonated with me, and the biggest thing that I think did was the was vulnerability. Is it's yep. being vulnerable? It's being, you know, that it's okay to be emotional. It's okay to to cry, and it's okay to show that emotion uh, on your on your on your sleeve, and and yes, and be able to express that to people. Well, all the great warriors in history have been like that. Mm. I, mean, I mean, go back to Alexander the Great. You know, look at the Spartan warriors, look at the Roman warriors, you know, Chesty Puller, <laughs> you know, the Marines, all those sorts of things. That's part of being human. And to be yeah. human means you can be respected because if you're not setting yourself up to be human with all that it means in terms of positives and potential vulnerabilities and failures, then all you are is a caricature. You know, you're a facade. You can't be a real person. And, yeah. you know, you can look at the superheroes and the way that they're portrayed in the media and stuff. And, you know, Superman, when he first came out and Batman and, and those sorts of guys, they all had vulnerabilities, mm. you know, and were attracted to them in, in terms of media and that sort of stuff because they're human, but they've got flaws. They've got weaknesses. They've got vulnerabilities. And again, recognizing them and managing them is how we live our lives productively and effectively. And yeah, so pretending that you don't is just yeah, that's that's serious bullshit in a in a in a really good way to, to come crashing down sooner or later. Yes, definitely. No, I hundred percent agree, mate. All right, let's get stuck into your background. I want to talk a bit about about you, about John, and uh, and your your career path, I guess, and and how you got to to be where you are right now. Yeah, it's it's a bit different, mate. So very different. <laughs> yeah. So I was never much of a student when I was at school. And so when I was in year 12, I spent more time playing snooker. This was in Canberra and um, spent more time playing snooker at the labor club than I did actually going to school. Good old and, um, yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, anyway, so there was a recruiting stand in, in Belconnor Mall. And um, so I was there one lunchtime and thought, you know, bugger it, why not? And um, signed up. And so that was to the first 19th um, Royal New South Wales Regiment at that time. And yep. um, did my recruit course and, you know, IT course, 343. Um, and then, God, ended up transferring across to the local Canberra Regiment, which is 43, Charlie Company, RSWR. And then from there, <laughs> like I actually, I actually enrolled at uni because I um, didn't really know what else to do, basically. But then, so what was it? Well, yeah, it was an arts degree, English lit. So and for people that are listening, that's you, so what they what you're talking about now. If they're not aware, you're talking about signing up to the reserves and and yeah, being, sorry, yeah, being reserves first, and then and then being able yep. to because there might be some people sitting there going, I thought yep. you joined the army. How the hell can you go to uni? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we're talking, so, about, yeah. talking about reserves first at the moment, and then we'll get get into yeah. So yeah, part-time army and, and I was supposedly a full-time student. I was doing Japanese and oh, nice. was, yeah, well, mainly because I was doing a lot of Japanese martial arts at the time. And um, yeah, awesome. so I was like, what else do I do? Well, shit, at least that'll come in handy. Yeah. And, um, but I only was I actually only at uni for six weeks out of the whole semester because I was away with the army reserve the whole time. So yeah. midway through about April, actually, um, so this time back in 1990, applied for Royal Military College, Duntroon, and got accepted. And so I started there. So that was my IRA career in July 1990 and um, went through actually until the end of first class and mm-hmm. had some medical problems and got backclassed. And at the time I was only 18, sorry, just turned 19. So, and I struggled and, um, you know, in particular struggled feeling so young and for what I felt the weight of responsibility was and so um ended up transferring from rmc resigned my temporary commission and became a soldier and so went to ordinance as a clerk tech to start with and then a clerk admin and um after a couple of years of being a clerk tech decided well after 18 months two years i think decided i needed a trade or an education so enrolled um, at Monash Uni by distance education, doing an English lit and psychology degree part time, and um, God, then it ended up getting posted to Melbourne because Monash was based in Melbourne, and my unit was a mobile sort of warehouse basically for repair parts stores. Yep, and they were going to Darwin, which then became the first combat support services battalion, one Sisby, and um, which still exists now. And so I elected to get posted to Melbourne instead because that's where the uni was. Um, but anyway, I ended up then getting posted as the admin sergeant for the director of medical services in Victoria. And by that stage, I'd done four years of the degree part-time and sort yep. of thought, well, look, medicine's really interesting and I actually think I want to do medicine. <laughs> um, yeah, because I was working with doctors and medical students and that sort of stuff at the time too. And um so I didn't have, well, I applied for med when I finished my undergrad degree, mm-hmm. but I didn't have year 12 biology. So I didn't get in the first year. And so transferred to the reserves. Um, my wife at the time and I moved to, to Hobart, to Tassie, because I wanted to study at UTAS and wanted yep. to live in the country. And um, Tassie was pretty much the best place to do that at the time. So I did year 12 bio. I did my honours year in psychology, so full time. And I did a hundred days in the reserves as a field craft instructor with RMC. Yep. <laughs> Long way around and at defense. Back to the college. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In a different role. It was pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. But, and then, then I ended up getting into medicine after that and then did first year med 
uh, while still doing reserves and then got picked up on long-term schooling. And um, so, yeah, six years of medicine at that stage because that's how long the degree was. And um, then worked uh, mostly sort of general practice and emergency type work and started my return of service for Army as a doctor at 1HSB, the first health support battalion, which was in mm -hmm. Halsworthy. And so that was 2007 until the end of 2009. And um, so that was all general duties medical work. And yep. it was at that point in time that, um, uh, well, before I did my return of service obligation, I had three months um, in psychiatry as a, as a registrar. So as a junior doctor and really enjoyed it and thought, well, look, you know, that's something I'd, I'd like to do. And um, couldn't do it at the time because of the return of service obligation. So, because that was all GP and emergency sort of based work for Army. Yep. And um, so then left full-time Army at the start of 2010. So I could actually come back to Tassie and do my psychiatry training because that's another five years on top of the medical degree. So, mm. which is sort of pretty silly when you think about it because I think I've been at uni for oh, over 20 years. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, and so then worked, say, full-time doing my psychiatry training, but then part-time in the emergency department at the local private hospital too. So that was 20 hours a fortnight. So every weekend, second weekend, I'd do a Friday and a Saturday night shift just to keep my general medical skills up. Yep. And so that sort of makes me a little bit different, I suppose, because I've got a lot of general medical background behind me before doing psychiatry. And yep. um, obviously pretty channeled into psychiatry now, but... um. Yeah, that, that didn't really change until 2013 when I got um, asked to deploy to Afghanistan as a part of the last task group that was going over formally to um, Uruzgan. And so I was supposed to be the senior medical officer for Tarancot. And mm -hmm. um, <laughs> unfortunately, though, they canned the, the position about two or three weeks before we left. So I had six weeks they, they decided to still send me because you know i'd done all the, the three months of pre-deployment and all that sort of stuff and um worked up with the group and everything else and they had a doctor for you know 12 months and they didn't know what to do with me so they they staged me forward at amab at the base in dubai just at yep. al midhat air base and um i was there for six weeks and after a few weeks i managed to go and have a look at the role three the multinational medical um, unit, which was the the NATO sort of tertiary hospital in the south of Afghanistan, and um, <clears throat> went there for a, about four or five days for a visit. And the psychiatrists there, the mental health team, were short. <laughs> and so Mike McBride, the senior psychiatrist there, because it was a Navy facility, was like, "What the hell are you doing over there? You know, we need you here." So I ended up getting formally invited to go and work with the Americans there. And, so that was down at Kandahar, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, at Kandahar Air Force Base. So, yeah, yep. CAF. And, um, but that was pretty funny because um, <laughs> it threw everyone into, into a spin because they'd never invited anyone to work with them before. It's always been yeah. us, you know, the other way around. But I ended up going there from the end of July uh, 2013 through to December 2013. And... Um, that was that was pretty incredible so working as an australian embedded with the americans treating mostly americans and um yeah look it, it was really good because it taught me a lot about the way the, the american military medical system works and in particular their mental health system and 
we don't have psychiatrists in in uniform in defense really and we certainly don't employ them full-time like they do in the states and yeah. um, like in the states it's a full training thing you know so like for four years they their their training to be psychiatrists is four years long and but they do it within the military medical system and they yeah, treat right. civilians as well but mostly mostly military and like that to me was was amazing because <laughs> to get I mean, there's no formal training program for psychiatrists in Australia to get experience with veterans and with military members. And so anything you sort of pick up along the way is if you're lucky enough to have the opportunity to work with veterans at a repat centre or something like that, but there's no other sort of formal training. And so for me, working in that role was huge because, you know, I just learned so much. And um, just, you know, working with National Guard, um, their regular and their part-time reserve force was was pretty amazing just a different range of things that i saw and the people i met and dealt with and stuff as well and um so i was lucky enough when i came home to end up getting a churchill fellowship and went to the states in 2015 for six weeks looking at military and veterans mental health programs and yeah. um, when i was there so i spent a, oh, about 10 days with mike mcbride in milwaukee and um through him, um, met some other people at the um, the Palo Alto VA in San Francisco, and that's the US National Center for PTSD. And um, it was there that I met Professor Marilyn Cloyder, who who had developed the program that I'm now delivering and evaluating as part of a PhD. And mm. so that's the the STAIR program, the Skills Training in Affective and Interpersonal Regulation. And you know, this is what I've been running. I started it in Hobart in 2016 with Mates for Mates and um, it's now running in Hobart, Brisbane and Townsville with Mates for Mates, but in Adelaide through the road home. And yep. um, yeah, you're, you're currently doing the program at the moment and a bunch of other people have as well too. I yeah. am. <laughs> mm. And I'm loving it by the way, as well. Like it's a, yeah. um, it's good for me because um, you know, we, we actually discussed this in our last uh, session, I guess that I've, yeah. I've, come, I've come through things, a bit of the hard way i've had to learn things uh on my own and on the fly and um with with the help of of my psychiatrist and, and gp as well but definitely a lot of the um the mentality things that i've kind of developed has been stuff that i've researched myself and, and had to yeah. get out there and learn and and i kind of wish you know i said the other day i just wish i had a program like this because you know it's just it lays it out for you week by week oh. and it's bit by bit and it just builds, yeah. and it builds and it builds and it just gives you such a good grounding well, I've adapted the program pretty heavily to suit mm. us and to suit sort of the military mentality. But I think it's a huge gap in the services for, you know, military veterans, police and first responders, because, um, I mean, you have to sort of look at the current paradigm for treatment, I suppose. And, you know, in mental health, we still work off the medical model, which goes, if, if there's a problem, it has symptoms. And so if we manage the symptoms then the problem should go away. Yep. And unfortunately it doesn't necessarily work like that because so if we talk about trauma and stress disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, then it's a bit different because the symptoms are one thing, but the way you function as an individual is something entirely different. And, yeah. you know, when you get stressed, for example, you get irritable. And when you get irritable, you tend to get angry <laughs> and then you tend to get into arguments and then, people tend to leave you, <laughs> you yeah. know, in terms of relationships and things. Yeah, definitely. And then that makes you sad. And 
you know, then because you're sad or you're unhappy or you're stressed, then you might drink a bit or you, you know, your, your chronic pain, for example, is significantly worse. So then you take more prescribed medications or you do other things to help distract you from your problems. Mm-hmm. And so these are all behaviors and they're all ways of coping, but they're not necessarily symptoms of a disorder. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely. But unfortunately, the way we sort of operate now is we say to people, you know, if you're anxious and you're hypervigilant and you have some flashbacks and some nightmares, well, we'll treat that and then you should get better. And unfortunately, in my clinical practice, I don't really see that. And But if we go the other way, though, if we go, if I help you as a person function better within your own life and I can give you skills and tools that you can use to help yourself function better then the symptoms of your problem get significantly less and you can manage it a lot better. And so it's those sort of skills-based functional interventions that we don't have in Australia very much. And they don't even really exist in the States much either. And Mm. so my my program now is, is actually developing an evidence base to show that these sorts of programs help reduce the symptoms of anxiety, depression and PTSD um, and, and therefore they reduce the need for treatment. And the flip side of that coin too, is that if you can manage yourself and your emotions and your relationships, well, then the treatment that you get is likely to be significantly more effective as well too, because you've got yeah, the skills definitely. to handle it. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. it's a bit of a novel approach, but it seems to be working pretty well so far. And um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad about that. And I see, you see it so often as well. Like I see, I see guys out there and, and I say guys in a colloquial term, cause there's definitely yeah. guys as well. Um, but I see uh, people out there that just, they have these outbursts of anger. They have these outbursts of depression and anxiety and stuff. And, and I was, I used to be like this as well, but they, they just don't have the skills to deal with it. And so yeah. people see that and they, they see that and they want to steer clear of it. And they want to say, well, I don't want to be anywhere near around that. Cause that guy's just going to go off his, off his nana or off his trot. When, yeah. the, when the reality is, is that what people don't see is that that person just, they just don't have the fit, the function in their brain to be able to deal with those feelings and those symptoms like you're talking about there that are going on. And well, so that's, yeah, that's, look, when it, that's when it leads to things like drinking, like alcohol abuse, like drug abuse and, and those types of things. Cause they just don't have the skills. That's exactly right. And, you know, we talked about this in the program before, but mm. a big part of it is that sense of identity. And yes. so when you go into the military or any sort of service occupation like the police or EMBOs or the fireys or whatever else, you're trained to deal with problems, but you're not trained to deal with emotions because emotions tend to get in the way of doing the job. Because, you know, if I'm anxious about something, well, you, you've got to put that to the side and you've got to step over that. And you've got to put it in a box so that you can actually do your job. Yes. And so we get used to doing that. But you know, sooner or later, that stuff doesn't fit in the box anymore. And it starts, yeah, it starts to pop up awkwardly and in the wrong situations and circumstances. And then that freaks us out. And then, you know, we lose that identity of being capable and effective because we're undermined by our own emotions and our lack yeah. of ability to manage them. And so that starts that downward spiral of functional decline. So where I get stressed, I don't deal with it appropriately. <laughs> and then that causes more problems. You know, I end up losing my job because I can't do it anymore because I've got mental health problems and blah, 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 blah. And, mm. 
you know, in, in many ways, the programs that we're talking about are just ways of retraining ourselves to deal with things. And, you know, if, if, if you look at the people that go into the armed forces or to service type occupations, they have to be smarter than the average Joe. They have to be more dedicated. They have to be able to push harder and try harder. And they have to be able to tolerate a hell of a lot more distress than average Joe citizen can. And so, you know, the programs that I'm trying to, I'm trying to push and, you know, trying to evaluate for, for research purposes to show that they work. What we're talking about is actually harnessing those positive aspects of um, us and our identities and the way we're trained and, you know, just recognising the shit that we've put up with and that we've dealt with in our lives already. Mm. And so helping people understand that they can do these sorts of things, you just have to reframe it and put it into that proper task perspective it can make a really big difference to people. Yeah, it makes a huge difference to people. And how it kind of ties into um, really well to, you know, this kind of message here that you can you can develop these skills and you can learn these skills. It's just it's just a way of training your brain. It's just something. That's it. It's like doing mm. weapon drills. You know, we do weapon yep. drills over and over and over again, constantly, constantly, and constantly. So that if there is a stoppage when you're under fire, you don't think about it. You nope. just eject the shell, take out the mag, put a new mag in. Yep. You know, put the bolt forward yeah. away you go you keep firing and you don't and you even carry on and nope. you just carry on and so that's right it, and what you are teaching here in stair is you're teaching these skills so that if you practice them enough and you train them enough just like any other skill in life when you're in an anxious situation you start applying these skills without even thinking about it you know, that's exactly right and then you get on that's, that's obviously the goal function. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. But look, look, it really is. And that's what we talk about when we talk about resilience, isn't it? You know, being mm. able to bounce back when you get knocked down and, yeah. you know, roll with a few punches because you've got the skills to manage yourself. And yes, definitely. again, all of us, <laughs> that's how we like to see ourselves because mm. that's how we used to be. And there's no reason why we can't be like that again. We just have to learn a different skill set. And, yeah. you know, that skill set wasn't taught to us during our training. And, even though it might be relevant and should actually be relevant, you know, it's, it's hard to deal with when you're in that uniform and you're doing those particular jobs. But when you're not in uniform and you can't do that job anymore, that's when this sort of stuff becomes overwhelming. And that's when the deficits in the way we function because of our lack of training come out. Yes. Yep. A hundred percent. And you can, you can really see that as well. Like you can, mm. you can see it with people you can see it with the, people that go through the program as well as people just aren't in there that once they actually start to get their head around how they develop these skills, that's and it. the way they improve, oh, it's just in how quickly they improve is, is what has shocked me the most. Um, yeah. Say shocked is in a good way. Like it's surprising yeah. the most is, is how quickly people have gone from, you know, not conversing, not being able to express their emotions, not even putting their hand up in a group because they're worried about being judged. Um, because, you know, if, if people, I don't think we touched on it yet, but this is a group-based therapy. It's not a one-on-one -on -one yep. therapy. It's a group-based. Yep. We'll talk more about that in a second. But, you know, to then get to halfway through the program and you've got these people just coming out of their shell. You know, well, it's incredible. That's, and that's exactly why it's in a group format. Because, mm. you know, again, in, in our occupations, we never, ever work individually. And when you're you know, by yourself with your psychiatrist or your psychologist or even your GP, you've got no frame of reference to judge how you're going. And, you know, your doc can tell you you're doing a good job, but if you can't reference that off your mates, <laughs> then 
you've got no standard to judge yourself by. And the first thing we'll automatically do is judge ourselves harshly and, you know, not look at the positives and go, well, look, I've got this to do and this to do and so much further to go and so on and so on. But when you can see people that you can relate to <laughs> doing the same sort of thing, yep. you can judge your progress. You can judge where you're at. And, you know, again, being in that group environment, part of how we operate is that we want to support our mates and we want to work with our mates. And so, you know, pretending that these fundamental parts of how we operate as people don't exist, that to me is just bizarre. And so that's why we leverage that by doing this sort of stuff in a group environment, because then it's how we were trained. It's how we're used to operating and you can leverage off your mates. You can leverage off the other people, see them improving, which motivates you to improve. And then your improvement motivates them to improve. Yeah. And so it's a win-win all around. And yep. yeah, you just can't do that one-on-one. You just can't. Yeah. And so what do you think are your goals for, for stare in the future so what do you where do you want to take it to what do you want to develop it to well look i think this sort of a program should basically be first line management for people before they actually go into treatment because this isn't actually a treatment program and by that i mean you know we specifically don't talk about our past trauma we don't we specifically don't talk about um I suppose what we've been through instead what we're talking about is what's happening now and how we're managing it so that's what i mean by functional but a treatment program for example will talk specifically about that past trauma and help you you manage it and and deal with it and yeah so having you know the skills to be able to do that is sort of a prerequisite for doing the treatment part <laughs> so ideally these sorts of programs would be first line you know, this is the first thing you do as soon as you realised you started to need help. The biggest sort of goal for me, though, is to actually have this developed, sorry, delivered by people who've been there, done that. And so by that, I mean peers, people with lived experience. And someone like you, for example, who's been in uniform, has your own mental health journey and experiences and a lot of bloody hard-won and hard-fought-for knowledge and experience because of that. And mm. that means you're a very valuable resource. And because yeah. you can communicate with people and you can train other people in these sorts of things, because that's exactly what you used to do in uniform too. Why aren't we using you and your abilities in, a, in, in this way to keep on helping your mates. And so having peers deliver this sort of a program to me is ideal because it models recovery and it shows you that there's somewhere to go and it shows you that you can actually get better. And yeah, you know, when you're at, at those low points, those are really important things to learn. Is it, is, and it, I think it's a, the, the concept of it being rolled out the way you, the way you're talking about there, I think is, is, is a great way to, and, and we spoke about it the other day, it's a way of, I guess, getting your bang for buck in terms of, in terms of, cause you're only one bloke, like you're only yeah. one person. There's only so many hours a week you can put in to, That's it. to doing yeah. this, you know, it's, mm. it's, um, yeah it, it, so being able to being able to roll something out like that is a way of reaching more people with with more resources essentially look massively so you know and and before i started doing this full-time last year i had an eight-month wait list and that's when i was seeing 45 50 people a week but it was still taking because of the number of people that wanted to see me because of you know my attitude and my my previous experience 
you know, you'd still have to wait eight weeks before you saw me. And that was just, you know, locally in Tassie and like people wanted to see me or they want to see me, I suppose, because I've been there, done that too. And yeah. so, um, you know, don't come across as a doctor or whatever else. Um, and <laughs> that's more reason for having peers because you, you model what you can relate to and you admire. And so having people that have been there, done that and look relatively well adjusted because of all the hard work they've put in means that those skills can translate. And, yeah. you know, again, there's not a lot of other psychiatrists with military experience and there's not even a lot of doctors or psychologists that have got military experience and get the mentality and get the culture and get how we operate. And so that's why I was like, well, bugger it. You know, we can't train these people and give them our experiences of life. But what we can do is give the people who've got our experiences in life because they've been in uniform and they've served, we can give them enough training to be able to run these sorts of skills based programs. And yeah. then we can save the treatment for the ones that really need it. And yeah. so, yeah, so much more cost effective, cost efficient, and probably a lot more effective and useful because you want to talk to people who know what you're talking about. Full stop. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is in, in my, this is only my opinion as well. Um, and we, I don't think we've even discussed this before. So this is, this isn't a loaded question or anything on those lines for people listening. This is purely my opinion. This is for me, this is a program that needs to go out to, to regiments, to, to battalions, to, to police forces, to fire, fire forces, to ambulance forces, and to be taught before, like it needs to be taught yeah. within the workplace and, and it's taught before yeah. this, this should be part of mandatory training every year. They sit down and they go through this a program like this because yeah. then, we, we arm our, we arm our people with better skills before they reach that. And obviously I know that, you know, that's a pipe, a, a pipe pipeline dream, I guess, or it's, um, you know, it's, it's to be able to, to roll out something like that is, is extremely cost. I guess it costs a lot and it's, um, it's a, it's a massive cost burden uh, to be able to do something as, as big as that and to be able to run it. But however, you know, I just look at this program, I'm like, this is the program that, that just regular people, just need to learn, learn this shit yeah. so that before they, and so you're exactly right. So that before they actually experience something bad, mm. they've got these skills already there and they're ready to go. You know, that that's already one of their, one of their tools, I guess, to have in their tool bag ready to deal with this. And so when it comes to the treatment side of things, when we're getting people that are in a really bad place, mm. you know, hypothetically, you should be seeing less of those people in the future. Well, I think, you know, so first of all, the model of having peers deliver this means that it can be done really, you know, quite simply and easily. And so mm -hmm. that's the first step in terms of access for people. Um, in terms of having it delivered to everyone, that's like, that's a very aspirational goal. Yes. And, yeah. You know, I'd like to see that, but there's, there's a couple of issues. And the first issue is if you think back to your own time, you know, in uniform, we were all 10 foot tall and bulletproof. We didn't need that shit, you know? And if we got anything like that, we'd just brush it off and just go, well, that's not for me. I don't need that shit. So, you know, part of the problem is helping people understand what they do need. And unfortunately for most of us, because we're all 10 foot tall and bulletproof, it's only when we work out we're not that we realize we need something. Yeah. So having this sort of during that transition phase or having this, for people to do when they're in uniform would, would be ideal. It would just be ideal. But, you know, keep on getting the evidence base behind it. 
keep on, you know, doing the evaluation to prove that it works and not just that it works, but how it works and why it works. And in particular with us. And I think that's one of the biggest things about this particular program and how I've adapted it is because I focus a lot on us, our identity, you know, our identity and the way it changes from when we're in uniform to when we're not. And in particular, how we reconcile having problems, whether mm. they be physical and mental health problems or whatever they are, but how we actually manage those problems and how we actually maintain a sense of positive identity. And we do that through self-efficacy in terms of being able to do things. And, you know, because that's the way we see ourselves in uniforms. We do things, we're doers, we're task-oriented people. And so any sort of, you know, skills-based program or whatever else needs to use those sorts of culturally appropriate things by giving us tasks to do because that's just how we work. So we can manage that sort of stuff. And it's not about saying to someone then, you know, you're broken, you need to be fixed. It's about saying to someone, well, look, mate, you're not doing things as easily as you could. (laughs) And here's a bunch of tasks that you can do so that you can do that sort of stuff easier. And, you know, when you put it into that sort of a framework with identity and with task and with some sort of purpose, then it makes sense and then people can engage with and they can do it. Because I think, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but like offline, obviously, Mm. but one of the biggest problems that I think we have as people is that we don't have the context and the framework to deal with mental health problems because there's no task around it and there's no purpose around it for us. And so it's really bizarre and it's strange and we just don't know how to manage it. And so programs like this that are skills based put a context around it. They, you know, they talk about our, service culture and our identities and how we operate, how we work as people and the values that we have in common. And then how you can use those same things through tasks to, to put your mental health problems into context, manage the behaviors associated with it, and then come out the other end being a hell of a lot stronger. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And is this something that you think that potentially can be, I guess, re? And whether it's done by you or done by someone else, that doesn't that don't really matter in terms of the answer to the question. But is it something that you think can be repurposed again to be able to deliver to people who aren't from a service background and, and to be able yeah. to Yeah. Obviously so, there's certain parts of it that would need to be changed, but in the yeah. way that the way that we language we use and the way that we talk yes. about things. But the skills yeah. themselves. Well, this is the thing, because the general skills are literally just general skills. Yes. So the program itself is a grab bag of, of various psychological tools, you know, and they come from uh, an acceptance and commitment framework and then a cognitive behavioral framework and various other things, but they're just a bunch of tools. What makes it relevant for us, I think, and for any other community is the context that you put it in so that it actually is relevant to us in our community. And mm-hmm. this sort of a program would be ideal for people with like normal civilians with mental health problems. Because again, it's all about that lived experience and the context that the skills are put in so that it actually makes sense to you so that you can use them. Because if it doesn't make sense, (laughs) you think the person telling you stuff is a Muppet. Definitely. (laughs) And if you think someone's a Muppet, well, you're not going to listen to them and do what they ask, are you? Yeah, definitely. So no problems, no no program's going to work when it's like that. Yeah. But on the other hand, if if the bloke that you're talking to or the lady that you're talking to can deliver something that makes sense to you and can explain why it makes sense and the purpose for doing it, 
well, you're 90% likely to actually do it, aren't you? Yeah. Mm. And I think that's a, it's almost like a, a form of stopgap for, for men in particular as to why they, you see a lot of um, statistics thrown out there. And I don't have them off the top of my head, but a lot of them are out there at the moment that say that, you know, the amount of men that are actually getting into, uh, into, I guess, one-on-one treatment and then are leaving like, really yeah. quickly. And it's, yeah. and it's really high. And, and, and I, you know, this, again, this is just the, the point of view of Brendan, but I, I believe that that is around that they can't relate to the person that's delivering the, delivering the content. Yes. And, you know, the people that are delivering the content, they, I mean, you heard all about, you know, my background being quite different, but, you know, geez, what was that? You know, five years or six years of undergrad training psychology, six years of medicine, you know, then worked as a doc for five years and then another five years of psychiatry training. Now, you know, you have to be different because of that. And because clinicians tend to have those sorts of lives, they don't necessarily tend to have the life that makes them relatable to the man on the street or the woman on the street. And every job low life. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. And, mm. you know, part of being a good clinician is, is about being able to relate to people and have people yep. being able to relate to you. And so that's what we call rapport. And rapport is about, you know, having the person you're talking to feel that they can relate to you. And it's much easier if you don't have a lot of education <laughs> because you're not that different. Yeah. And it's, it's all about sort of, I suppose, making something complex, simple. Yeah. Mm. This is why I yeah. communicate well with people. <laughs> yeah. Well, and same, same too, because Poor education. <laughs> well, yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, this is one of the lessons that was always drummed into me as a doctor and, and, you know, always something that's stuck in my head. No one gives a shit about how much you know. They just care about how much you care. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's the bottom line. You can know, geez, you can have a brain like Einstein's, but if you can't talk to someone and if they can't understand that you care about them, then your knowledge is not worth a bucket of spit because yeah. literally you can't impart it. And so again, it's about being able to relate to people and being able to, to actually pass that knowledge across in a way that makes sense to people. And yeah, yeah, this EQ, is EQ over IQ essentially. Well, it is. And it, you know, it goes back to the stuff that we talked about at the start, you know, in terms of having that emotional vulnerability and that's part of being human. And, you know, a big part of this whole thing is recognizing that we are all human. And yep. I might be a doctor, but that's what I do. It's not what I am and yeah. not who I am as a person. It's just part of what I do as a job. So, yes. And, and, you know, we've, we've, this is kind of a glimpse into, I guess, into me and to, to the way that we've had therapy together, but we, we've spoken about this in depth about, about myself and how I, you know, how I, for so many years was, I was Brendan, the officer in the army and you know i was an artillery officer who led soldiers and did that kind of stuff i wasn't um you know i wasn't brendan who just happened to be a soldier mm. yeah and that was my identity and so when that identity was taken away from me it just left a, a gaping hole in my life which happens to so many people coming out of the services i look hugely so and that services including police and emergency services because it's exactly the same sort of thing and that's what i meant before about us all being 10 foot tall and bulletproof because mm -hmm. when you lose that identity 
that's when you have to go, well, who am I and what am I if I'm not this? And, you know, that's coming back to the core of what it is to be human and what it is to be a man and what it is to have the same sort of values that you had during your training, but just be able to apply them in a different way. And, you know, you haven't lost those strengths. You haven't lost that strength of character, that strength of will and that determination and that strength of purpose. All we need to do is help you, uh, you know, fix those broken legs so you can walk again. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's actually, it takes a fair bit of effort, but it's not that complicated. You know, that's the thing. It's actually not that complicated. It's, it's just about, behavior. yeah, it's just lessons learned. Yep. yep. And, you know, again, this is stuff you know, I talk about during the program and stuff, but what you practice is what you get good at doing. And so if you do practice stuffing up and you do practice falling over and you do practice avoiding dealing with the hard stuff, then you'll actually get really good at it. Your life won't be very much fun, but you'll get really good at doing that sort of stuff. And mm. this is again, going back to task, mission, purpose, giving ourselves appropriate tasks with a mission to improving ourselves for the purpose of getting back to that identity of, of who we were and what we were and being able to, you know, move to a different level, I suppose, of operating because we're not on the services anymore, but we're still good people and we've still got a lot to offer society. You know, we can still work, we can still provide for our families, we can still do all these other sorts of things. And, you know, that to me is just gold. And seeing people improve in the program or seeing people improve in my own private practice, those intrinsic rewards are just enormous. And, yeah, definitely. You know, it, it makes me feel proud to be able to say to people, you know, I was there and helped you make yourself better. Yeah, because yeah. It's not, not, you know, it's, it's never my job to cure someone or to fix someone. It's my job to help them help themselves. And, and that, that's a real that, privilege. That's a hundred percent. What you just hit right there is huge. And so many people that go into therapy and they think that the therapist is going to cure them. That's no. not how it works. Like, nope. Nope. you've got to want to get better. You've that's got to right. want to, you've got to want to do the work. And if you don't want to do the work, you can go to all the therapy sessions you want. You can take all the medication in the world you want. And we will touch on medication soon, but yeah. you can take all these things you want. Nothing is going to help you nope. until you make the decision yeah. in your mind. Fuck this. I want to get better. That's exactly right. It's that old cliche that we have in psychiatry about how many psychiatrists it takes to change a light bulb. You know, at the end of the day, the light bulb's got to want to change first. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is a sad joke, but it's That's so true. true. You know, if the light bulb doesn't want to change, then it doesn't matter what I do. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter how much support I offer, how much running around, how many pills you take and all those other sorts of things, you know. And, and again, you can pick up the, the book for the program and you can look through it and go, how can I put that in a tablet form? And the answer yeah. is you can't because those are skills and yes. those are things that you are doing as a part of living your life. And because it's part of living your life, it's not a pill. You know, it's not a tablet that you can take that's suddenly going to fix you because until you start fixing yourself, nothing's going to change. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So talking about medication, let's, mm. uh, let's jump straight into that. So medication is a, is a, I've been pretty open on the podcast and in, in how I, how I, my opinions of medication, how, how it works, but I'm keen to know from a professional point of view, um, medication in your in your world and and how do you apply it and how do you how do you guess guide your patients through taking medication and what they do once they're once they're on it well first of all 
the podcast you did a few weeks ago talking about medications was the best one I've heard on medications from anyone ever. So Thanks, mate. well it. done to that. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, because it was so honest and it was so open. And, you know, the point with medications is that in, particularly in terms of mental health, we have things that work mostly for most people. So that, those are some pretty big qualifications in there. Yeah. Most, mostly for most people. That's the same as Panadol. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when you yeah. think about it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But the problem with mental health stuff is it's not just the condition you've got, it's what you do in terms of living your life and how you live your life. Now, mm-hmm. if, for example, you suddenly went bankrupt and your wife left you, you'd be depressed, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So if I gave you a tablet for that depression, would it suddenly give you a lot of money? Would it suddenly make your wife come back? Well, no, it wouldn't, would it? And so giving you a medication is not going to help circumstantial and situational problems. And if your wife left you and if you lost your job and then you started drinking and then you suddenly decided that you were going to win your money back by gambling and then all of a sudden now you're, you know, couple of hundred thousand dollars in debt you'd be even more and more unhappy wouldn't you yeah and again how can i fix that with a tablet and the answer is i can't you know because it's the behavior that creates the emotions and creates the problems and so until you fix those behaviors you're still going to have all those symptoms mm. now on the flip side someone can be going along through life and doing everything as well as they can and still have those symptoms of anxiety or depression and if that's the case, what that means is it's, it's effectively the same as having a broken leg. And so if you've got a broken leg, for example, we strap you in a cast and we give you a pair of crutches to walk. And the cast is to fix the physical problem and the crutches are to help you walk so you can still get around and live your life. Yep. And that's the way we need to start thinking about medications. They're not going to fix you necessarily 100%, but they are going to help you live your life so you can do as much as possible for yourself to fix yourself as well too. Because when you see people that are seriously depressed, you know, and as a psychiatrist, that's, that's our bread and butter. That's what we do. People can't even get out of bed. They can't eat. They can, you know, they can barely talk. And, you know, in worst case situations, you might be talking multiple different medications or even electroconvulsive therapy because Mm -hmm. it's the only thing that's going to get them better. And in many ways, you know, talking about drugs as crutches, Drugs can improve your mood and they can improve your mood to the extent where you can engage in all those psychological therapies and behaviors that you need to, to be able to get yourself better. Spot on. So drugs are like crutches there. They help you walk, but they won't make you walk. (laughs) And and more importantly, they won't make you keep walking either if you're not walking in the first place. So that's, you know, that's, that's the way we talk about drugs with, you know, things like anxiety and depression and even PTS with an illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, the drugs literally will save your life. Yes. No other way to treat it because your brain yeah. is so unbalanced and so out of touch with reality that you need the medications to bring you back into reality to be able to operate. But then there's all the same behavioral things that keep on going as well too. And mm. so, you know, with mental health, we're in that funny sort of world of dealing with behavior and then dealing with the symptoms. And yeah, you know, balancing the two because, you know, the mental health drugs that we have, they're fairly powerful and they have some pretty nasty side effects. You know, they make you slow. Um, 
for a lot of men particularly, they give you, well, they can give you problems with you know, erectile dysfunction. Yep. And for men and women, they can give you difficulties having orgasms. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> it might sound cool to be like, you know, some sort of star that can keep Stand. on going. Stand. Stand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that can keep reality. on going for hours. Yeah, the reality is... No. Reality check, it's not. No. no, it's not. That's right. You know, you, you want to hit that point sooner rather than later. <laughs> it, actually, it actually makes you worse. Like it makes you, yeah. it makes you more depressed because you feel like you're, you're not able to perform and you're not able to do you can't get it on and then you're second guessing yourself and then exactly. you're avoiding your partner and then yeah. you don't want to be intimate and then that creates distance and then she's upset with you and you're upset with yourself and then yeah yeah a bit of a mess yeah and it's it seems to like it's well i just love that you're kind of um from a medical background your kind of your your definition of medication there and how how you guys how you guys really treat it and use it it's, i just love it that it kind of works with kind of my own kind of um, what I've developed in my own kind of brain. And, and so people can go back and listen to those episodes that you, you were talking about before where they can hear in depth about what I think about medication, how it works, but in simple, in a, in a real simple sense, we spoke about it earlier that, that people who, um, who are experiencing all these issues and don't have the tools to be able to deal with it. Well, this medication is one of those tools, but it's yes. just a tool. It's you know, just a tool. Yeah. All, all it does is it puts you in the right frame of mind so that you can learn these tools, these other skills and these other behaviors to be actually be able to change your life. Like the medication isn't yeah. going to do that for you. No, it's not. I mean, the medication, you know, to get technical works on the neurotransmitter levels in your brain. Mm. And so changing the neurotransmitters, particularly serotonin and then neuroadrenaline and a bunch of other ones as well too, does make you feel better to a degree. So it yes. can give you the capacity to do the stuff that you just couldn't do before. It just allows you to be able to deal with those yeah. emotions. Yeah. And it sort of, you know, it, it, I suppose it also really shows the fallacy of all or nothing, you know, relying totally on medication or saying all those drugs are bad because the side effects are really bad. Yeah. You know? And we were speaking about this off air as well. Yeah. We we're saying that, mm. that most people are, are one or the other. They're stuck and, on one side of the fence. There's no one that, kind yeah. of transits between the two it's either you are reliant on medication so and you're not doing you're not learning these skills or the complete opposite in that you 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 refuse to take medication because you you think that it's gonna you know ruin your life and undermine you in some way yeah. exactly but and that you goes can't, you can't deal with the emotions yeah well i mean again go straight back to what we said at the very start when you asked me you know about masculinity and i talked about vulnerability you know, and vulnerability is about that middle ground and recognizing yeah. when you need something and when you need help. And if, if you recognize when you need help, you can't be in either of those all good or all bad camps, can you? Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. you have to be able to say, look, I know I need help at the moment. In six months time, that might be different depending on what I do. But at the moment, I need help. So that means that automatically you're not in the drugs are good or drugs are bad camp, you know, <laughs> you're in the camp of this is what I need to get me better now. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's a totally different mindset that I wish a lot of people would, would be able to wrap their heads around because mm. when you're in the all good or the all bad camp, by definition, that's not stable and it's not safe for you because life yes. isn't all good or all bad. Mm. You know, there's just, yeah, and that sort of rigid way of thinking is what happens to us when we get unbalanced and when we get stressed. And, you know, we look for certainty 
but unfortunately there isn't certainty in life you know all sorts of things are going to happen and you can't predict it and you can't control it and so yeah. learning how to manage yourself is the best way to do it i mean it's 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 like being in a fight you know you can't fight or you can't train to beat someone what you can do is train to be the best you can and have a range of offense and defense strategies and tactics so that yeah. no matter who you're fighting you've got the best chance so, definitely yeah I think one of the things I've kind of discovered in the, um, and I apologize. I don't know if you can even hear this, but if people can hear racketing happening around the back of my back of this room, I've got these two bloody cats that are scratching on doors and meowing and walking around. So they're giving me the shits at the moment, but um, <laughs> so I do apologize if anyone can hear that in the background. I'm not sure if it's coming through on the mic or not, but it's, uh, it's like there's a little bit of noise coming through, mate. But that's real. That's life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know? Exactly. It's exactly what we said. Nothing's perfect, with, is it? With the punches here. Rolling with the yep. punches. I think I've got another cat scratching on the door at the moment, but I'll get to that one. <laughs> so the one things I've kind of discovered over the years, oh, no, years, sorry, um, over this the course of running a podcast like this, and I've spoken to people from you know military backgrounds, civilian backgrounds, um, doesn't really matter any any kind of background, is that when we lose a sense of purpose in life, that is when we are most vulnerable to being exposed to these types of things. And without that purpose and without that real drive in what we're doing in life, we tend to, we tend to really suffer. Do you, do you kind of see that a lot? And then I know that yeah. this program talks about um, us as military people losing our purpose, but I think it's across the wider spectrum Look, look, it does. And um, a mate of mine who is an ex-US Navy psychologist actually just recently sent me a a New York Times article on this. This It's a guy by the name of David Brooks. And um, so he's he's written a book, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. And I'm plugging it here because the article that I read was really good and it's exactly about this. And basically, you know, in it, he talks about the fact that you see people and the first mountain they climb is more about them and it's about some sort of success in life whether it's at yep. work or in relationships or whatever else and then you get to the top of that mountain and you go well now what <laughs> is this yeah. is why is this why it? doesn't why doesn't it feel like i'm at the top of a mountain yeah <laughs> you, know, you know yeah and so then it comes back to actually rediscovering another mountain through purpose and that purpose is generally something outside of yourself yeah yep. and you know, our training in the military and in the services is all about completing tasks. And if we don't have a task, then we don't have a sense of purpose. We don't have a reason to exist. We don't have a reason to get up in the, in the morning, get out of bed and, and go on with our day. And that's one of the biggest sort of tragedies, I suppose, of, of being, you know, discharged from the military or losing your job because, you know, you no longer have a purpose and without a purpose, then you're no one. Yep. Yeah, definitely. But I think the real strength is that second mountain where you actually discover your own sense of purpose. Yeah. And, you know, I can look at you, for example, and go, you know, you've been through a hell of a journey and you've done a hell of a lot of climbing just to get back onto level playing field. Mm. Yeah. Like, and that's, that's, you know, that's a long way down that valley. Yeah, You've definitely. had to actually come back up again. And then it's funny because when you get back up on the top of that, that valley end of the plains, you can actually start to see around a bit and you can work out or not work out, but you can sort of stumble onto 
you know, what you want to do because of who you are as a person. You know, and that's why I could say that you've got a job, you've got a good job, you've got chances of other good jobs, you've got a good relationship, you know, but that's because of who you are and what you are. Yeah. But then where you're going to go next is something that you create for yourself. And because you're motivated and, you know, yeah, <laughs> you work bloody hard, <laughs> you actually create that for yourself. And that's why, you know, that's why you've done all these things with Invictus. That's why you've done the fundraising, you know, and awareness stuff in the past. And that's why you're doing things like a podcast now, yeah. all in your own time, all on your own dime. And, uh, you know, because it's what you feel you need to do to make yourself happy and keep your, that, that person you are inside of you satisfied. And so that's, you know, that's the second mountain and that's actually developing your own sense of purpose rather than relying on something that's given to you. And yeah. So yeah, that's a long roundabout way of saying this sort of stuff, but look, it, it literally is, you know, yeah. there was a, an Austrian psychiatrist who spent a couple of years, spent three years in the Nazi concentration camps in world war two by the name of Viktor Frankl. And he wrote a, you know, an amazing book um, called man's search for meaning. And, you know, he actually spawned a whole field of psychotherapy, which is about finding some sense of meaning and therefore purpose in life. And literally this is what it's about because most of us can't live meaningless lives. We can't do things for no clear purpose because it, it just drives us nuts, you know, and yeah. it kills us inside. And so literally it's about helping people. For me, it's about helping people recover themselves so that they can discover that sense of purpose and then through that sense of purpose, have a sense of meaning in their life. And, you know, it's a really privileged position to be in, to be a psychiatrist and do these sorts of things because it's just so bloody important. Yeah, definitely. And I, I would hope that as well, when we think about that mountain analogy that for me, this is the way I just think of it anyway, but that, that purpose mountain, that second mountain, I don't want it to ever end. Like no, I want, I want it to keep going, you know? Well, but it will keep on going because it's self-generated. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole point. And, and a know? great, a great speech. If anyone ever wants to listen to a speech, I am a huge, huge Matthew McConaughey fan. He's one yeah. of my absolute favorite actors. Um, and I just, uh, all right, all right, all right. I just, I love him. Love everything about him. But he um, gave a speech a, a few years ago. Now I think it was, it would have been back in probably a lot, quite a long, oh, 2014 era somewhere around there, I think, but you can just Google on YouTube and, and, and Google my hero is me in 10 years. And, and that's what he, when people ask him, you know, who, who's your hero in life? And he says, my hero is me in 10 years. Yeah. It's not, not because I'm up myself or not because I, uh, not because I, you know, I love myself too much or anything like that. It's that in 10 years time, when I reach that point, my hero is still me in 10 years. Yes. You know, my, hero, my hero is who I'm going to become, you know, that, yeah. that, that gives him drive and that gives him purpose. And I love That's, it. Like that, 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 yeah. that mountain analogy right there is, is, is that for me? Like it's exactly right. You know, and it implies so many different things, doesn't it? Because exactly as you said, you know, I mean, I've got a bunch of people I really admire and mm. I don't admire all of them, but I admire specific parts of them. You yes. know, and a lot of that is the determination and the fact that they create their own world. And literally that comes back to that sense of self and that sense of purpose in order to find meaning. And the realization that 
no one's going to give that shit to you. <laughs> you know, it's not in a bottle, not in a tablet. You're not going to find it at uni. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're not going to find it in a footy match either. But it's about who you are as a person and what you are going to eventually give back to the world that you're in. You know, yeah. and, and that's that that part of purpose. So, mate, look, I agree with you. Me in ten years' time, that's who I want to be. Yeah, yeah, that's who I want to be. You know, yeah, and it's a rolling target. Yeah, <laughs> it's a rolling it. goal. It just keeps going. <laughs> yeah. So, your job is obviously um, this. This next question is is obviously hard for you because you're used to working with people with a diagnosis. But without having a diagnosis on someone, if someone, if there are people out there that are listening to this that are that are struggling, which I know there are what what is your advice to them in in general like in a general sense is what 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 would what advice would you pass on to them right now if you could so the first bit of advice particularly to the blokes out there is recognize that you're vulnerable and recognize and own up man up to your own weaknesses yeah Mm. and that's a hard thing to do for all of us because again it's not how we see ourselves and it's certainly not how we want to see ourselves so the first thing is ask for help and the second thing is keep on asking for help because, you know, with the way the system is, probably the first person you ask isn't going to be the right person for you. Yeah. But just because you don't get the best answers first off doesn't mean you can stop trying and throw your hands up in the air and, and back into a corner and, you know, curl up and die because, mate, the purpose of life is to live. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. that's my firm belief. And so exactly what you did if you don't get the right answers first time then keep going you know and keep trying because there is someone who will be able to help you and will be able to connect with you and you know whether or not there's a diagnosis involved is irrelevant the point is is when you recognize yourself that you're struggling you know just like i've had to do just like you've had to do you've got to actually ask for help because if you don't ask for help well you're never going to get it and then the only person you've got to blame for being in a shit state is yourself isn't it so yeah, definitely yeah so again going back to those vulnerabilities and and being a real person recognizing when you need help asking for it and then keep on asking for it and then listening to that help and act, acting on it because <laughs> yeah. the best advice in the world is just you know it's, it's as much use as a fart in an elevator when you're not listening to it and you're not yeah. applying it yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely no point so that's that's what i'd say there are communities out there there are people out there and you know this i suppose is a reflection of us you know in our culture coming from the military but you know if you've lost that sense of community and you have lost the real community because you've been discharged from from army or from defense or from police or from the fireys or from whatever else there is still a community there yeah definitely. and so us as individuals are useless without a community to operate in. And so ask for help, find your community, work within your community and use the community to help you. So yeah, I love that, mate. Such that's good what advice. I'd be saying. Perfect. Well, we, we just, you know, we were never, ever, ever meant to live by ourselves. Were we? Yes. You know, no, we're not a tribe. We're always we're tribal. No, we're tribal. We're, we've always been part of a tribe. Yeah. And the problem with our modern society is you can sit in your room and you can log onto the net and you can pretend to yourself that you're part of a tribe somewhere, but you know, it's not because 
unless <laughs> it's the difference between porn and sex, isn't it? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Just because you can watch porn doesn't mean you can get laid, does it? <laughs> you know, and it's, it's exactly that because we operate as part of a tribe and, you know, you have a tribe when you're in service, you don't have a tribe when you're not. And so finding and connecting with that tribe is a part of getting help. And, and again, that's a part of our purpose too. And it's, it's being a part of that tribe and contributing to that tribe, whether it's your family, you know, a sporting group or a community group or whatever else, it's about having a tribe and working yeah. within that tribe. Yep. And for, you know, veterans out there that are listening to this now or people that are on the verge of, um, you know, of, of discharging and moving down that pathway, there are other tribes out there, you know, the military or the police force or the, the fire service, the ambulance service is not, that's not the be all end all of life. There's, nope. there's so many other tribes out there. There's so many other communities out there that you can engage with and you can enjoy You can join and you can enjoy. Very and, much. And look, mate, that raises two points right there because as you said before, Brendan, the artillery officer, like that was a part of your tribe then because that was part of your job. Yeah. And when it's not your job, it's not your tribe. Yep. It's not you as a person, is it? And now through your own sense of purpose, you're creating your own tribe. I mean, I think so. this, well, look, this podcast, you know, the other work that you've done, that's what you're doing. You're bringing people around you to create your own tribe. And that's yeah. what we do as leaders, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the second part is that your tribe is also your vibe. <laughs> and, you know, very much because... I mean, there are too many people out there who are negative, who are critical, who are pessimistic and who basically bring us down. Yes. And, you know, sitting around whinging about what, what it used to be like or how it's not fair, mate, no one ever went anywhere by bitching. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Ever. And so if your tribe is bringing you down, then find a new one or create a new one. Because again, the bottom line is that it's up to you. You know, the bang start, the bang, the buck stops with you, sorry, because you are the bang, yeah, your own yeah. big bang. And unless you do it yourself, no one's going to give it to you. 100%. Mm. So last question we roll into here because I've taken up a lot of your time tonight, so I don't want to take up too much more. But what is your definition of a healthy bloke? Um, so, yeah, listening to that on your other podcast as well too, and that's a really tough question because it can it be is. really complicated. <laughs> and it's but, so everyone gives a different answer, which is what I love. Yeah. Well, look, it's a tough I mean, question. My partner's got got some really good stuff, and so she thinks you should be happy at work, you should be happy with your family, and you should be happy with your love life. And yep. so those are three things that I think are really really important to have in your life. But who are you? at work with your family and with your partner, you know? And so that has to be acknowledging your strengths and being proud of them. But the second thing has to be acknowledging your weaknesses and then working to resolve them. Because when you can do that, you can stand up as a man at work with your family and with your partner and you can respect yourself. Because if you can't do that in those three domains, and respect yourself, no one else is going to respect you either. And so that means being true to your values, you know, honesty, integrity, respect, all that sort of stuff and being true to where you've come from and the traditions that you're a part of. And again, you know, going back to those tribes, being able to be a member of a tribe who can hold your head up 
and say, yep, might have these problems, <laughs> might have had this happen to me, but screw it, I'm still trucking, you know? And yeah, so that's, that's to me what it's about. It's about being able to respect yourself in those domains and just keep on working. Mate, I love it. Hmm. Thank you so much. I, I truly appreciate you taking the time to to um to come on here and have a good chat with me. I, I know we're going to have you're going to be back on here, mate. You're going to be a regular. On here. <laughs> well, look, it's look, it's an honour, mate. Because again, you know, you know, requested, you know, when you asked me to come on here, I was like, that's big shoes to fill. You know, because <laughs> the other people you've had on have been pretty bloody impressive. And yeah, as a, had some as cool a, on. yeah, very much. You know, and again not pissing in your pocket here, mate, but again, much respect. And again, <laughs> I've got to live up to your standards. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Overachieved those already, mate. Don't worry about that. Oh, no, no, no. Different folks, different strikes. That's the other part too, isn't it? You know? Exactly. So, yeah. I do appreciate your comments about the, um, the drug episode as well. That was, uh, uh, that was a tough episode to record that one. It was, uh, um, and I made it like, I, I didn't want to, cause I can, I can edit anything I want. Like I can yeah. edit things to make it sound good. I can edit things to make it sound bad. You can do anything you want with editing these days. But I just said, you know what? Fuck this. I'm just going to put yeah. it there and people are going to see that, you know what? Yeah. I can talk about this topics, but it, it's hard. It's not, it's not easy to talk about. <laughs> no, it's not mate. but that's the whole point, isn't it? Again, going yeah. back to what we talked about at the start, demonstrating a vulnerability because if you don't have any vulnerabilities then there's not really much to respect is there you know yeah exactly because as you as you talked about in that podcast you know the difficulties that you faced and you overcame and no one no one did that for you yeah <laughs> no one kicked you in the ass until you got up off the couch and did stuff exactly you know? and all those doctors and whatever else they were trying to help you but you know you needed that help at the start but then it wasn't so much of a help afterwards but yeah. at the end of the day you know much respect to you for realizing that and realizing the help that you did need and then doing the hard yards to get there for it because yeah. it's not easy nope. no mate Thank oh, yeah. you. Thank you. so that's what i call being a real bloke love it cool. <laughs> that's, that's what we're here for <laughs> yeah oh, awesome I will, All right, uh, mate. yes um thank you again and and we'll have you back on the episode soon i, I can i'm um, looking forward to it mate very much looking forward to it thanks mate all right that was an, another awesome episode and i'm so excited to be able to bring you that episode and be able to share that content with you john's story is incredible and he gives us so many points in there that we can work on and you know what what's actually and this isn't this is not trying to sound big headed or anything like that but it's actually really good to be able to listen to a medical professional talk and understand that me someone who is not medically qualified who who has learnt things like a layman like really from the from the back end of 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 education you know i'm not i'm not an academically smart person I ever have been and and so to be able to learn though that that what i'm what i talk about and what i teach is is truly relevant and it truly fucking works you know that that gives me it pumps me up makes me happy you know it gives me purpose gives me more drive to bring more content to you guys so thank you so much for tuning in thank you so much for following us and thank you so much for just being you thank you for being awesome thank you for being legends if you guys want to help the podcast what i need you to do is get out there and share this with people share this with your friends share this with your community get the word spreading the word is spreading fast as well i've had so many people random people just come out of nowhere 
email me out of nowhere saying, hey, thanks heaps for the podcast. We'd absolutely love it. And I don't even know. I probably should ask them how they how they got onto it, but I but I don't know how they got onto it, but it's just awesome to see that that spread is just happening. You know, that you know, we're really getting this in front of thousands and thousands of people. And that is awesome. Okay, thank you all so much again. If you want to be featured as a legend of the week, all you need to do is jump on, give us a rating, give us a review, keyword there, review, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, you know what? We're going to start opening us up to Facebook as well because not everyone uses iTunes and Google Podcasts is a pain in the ass. They don't have a review system set up yet. So we're going to open this up to to Facebook as well. So Facebook and iTunes, jump on and give us a review and you could be our next legend of the week. All right, guys, thank you so much. Thank you again, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Cheers.